We have been studying for the last few weeks the idea of having confidence unveiled. How do we find our confidence? You could also, we could have also named this series Being a Man or a Woman After God's Own Heart. We know that's how David is described, but what are the, what's the secret? What are the things that David did or the things that demonstrated in his life that he is a man after God's own heart? For we know that David had his issues. We know that David, though, had a calling from God. We know that as we look back on life, when we know that life's getting hard, and we're going to look at some very hard times for David today, that he is looking back and able to see that there was a moment that God put a calling on his life, and that he's able to look back at that with security and with confidence, knowing that God has a plan, God has a purpose, and we can do that as well. We mentioned that maybe it's not a, a calling to an occupation, like for, but for some people it is. Maybe it's a calling to a, a, a way that you're involved in things. Maybe it's a calling to a place. Maybe it is simply for you a calling of salvation, that God has called you to be a follower of his, and now that you are, even when the things get hard, you can look back and say, I know for a fact I'm saved. I know that God called me to this. And then we looked last week at David's courage, and and David was smart enough and spiritually wise enough to know that his courage that he had to stand before Goliath didn't come from his own skills with a sling. It didn't come from the things that he knew how he could do. It came from the fact that he pointed out that it was straight from God. His courage came from the Lord, and there are moments in our lives. When we know that God has called us to do something, this thing he's called us to do, it's going to take some courage. It's going to take some, some strength, some physical or some mental fortitude, if you will, to be able to stand for what God has for us to do and to do what's right. And so it takes courage to do that. And we can follow the principles of David and see that as we face our own little giants, that we will be able to find courage and God will give us that peace that makes no sense to anyone else around us. Well, today we're looking at David's commitment. David is committed to following the ways and the promises and the purposes of God in his life. A commitment, as it says on the screen, is a promise to be unswerving in allegiance to someone or something. Businesses have a commitment. In fact, I was able to Google this morning uh, a couple businesses just to see what it would say, and, and I put in there, McDonald's, our commitment to you, and hit enter, and I'll tell you what popped up is it said they were committed to quality ingredients. Just let that settle in there for a minute. But also, McDonald's is committed to consistency. They want to make sure if you go to McDonald's here in Athens or if you go to McDonald's in Beijing, wherever you go to McDonald's, a Big Mac is a Big Mac. You know what you're going to get when you go in there. I also looked up Amazon and, and wondered what, what they would say was their commitment for their, their customers. And it's a, it's a sustainable business for their customers and for the planet. You know, Amazon's CEO is a smart guy. He's going to make sure that he covers all his bases. So he's making sure all those folks who are so concerned about global warming and so concerned about all these different things for the planet's sake, for Mother Nature, if you will, for Mother Earth, they want to make sure that it's covered, that he wants to make sure they understand. So they're showing they have a commitment to that. 
Our church here at First Baptist, we are committed to our beliefs. We are committed to certain doctrines that we hold. You can go into the, uh, one of the easiest places to find where the doctrines that we are the most committed to and that we say we are unswerving on, the things that we are not going to change. If you look at the Baptist faith and message, you'll see some of those things. It, it has been declared to me in the past that the Baptists have two Bibles, it has been declared to me that by a particular man in a di- different denomination says he don't like the Baptists because they have two Bibles. They have the Word of God and they have the Baptist faith and message. Well, what he doesn't understand is the Baptist faith and message is simply a summary of the doctrines that we hold dear. It all comes from the Word. We have our doctrines. We have our core values that we're committed to. We are going to exalt Jesus. We are going to equip the saints, and we're going to engage the world with the gospel. That is what we are all about. Your family probably has a commitment, even if they're not written down. There's a chance you are one of those folks that has in your home somewhere, it says, in this house, we will love, we will laugh, we will. And you, you've seen those. That go to Cracker Barrel, you find those kinds of things hanging there, ready to be bought. Go to, go to Pigeon Forge, they're all over the place. You can even find them at Bucky's. But you go anywhere and you can find all those kinds of things. And it says, you state, this is who we're all about or what we're all about. And the truth be told, you may or may not have written them down for your family, but they show up in your practices. In fact, you could say that there is a difference between our stated commitments and our practiced commitments. That can even be said for each and every one of us about our personal walk with Jesus. We say we believe, we say we're committed, we say we understand and acknowledge, but our life might show something a little different. You see, David was committed to following God's plans and purposes for his life. No matter what came his way, he was committed to his relationship with God and making that the priority and the top thing in his life. As we all do, David would also have obstacles that would challenge that commitment. It's very important that you're able to to articulate to yourself what it is you are committed to. What are you unswerving on? What are the things that no matter what comes up, no matter how it's challenged, there is no way that you will turn against that. I often tell student, when I was in student ministries, I I would tell students, it's important that you know where you stand when it comes to premarital sexual relations before you get into a relationship. Because if you wait until you're in the throes of hormonal moments, you will lose. Your flesh will win, and, and they will. So you need to know before you get there, you and that person you are deciding to date need to be on the same page understanding. It goes for the same thing in many other areas of our lives. We have to know how and what we stand for. David had political obstacles. He had occupational obstacles, and he had familial obstacles, It all gets started, and we're going to cover several chapters today out of 1 Samuel. We're going to begin in in chapter 18, but we're going to end up spending most of our time in chapter 24. But I want to give you a summary of the obstacles, of the things that are facing David as we move in toward chapter 24. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 18 starts like this. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that would be Goliath, that was last week, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. 
And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And don't miss verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day on. So it begins. This is the beginning of, of Saul having his jealousy toward David. This is the beginning of Saul being paranoid about David, thinking that he is all he's going to want to do is take the kingdom. He already knows that God has rejected himself as king. Now he's find, finding out that, that God has anointed a new king to take over. He's the king in waiting, if you will, and it turns out to be this boy named David. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, going on in verse 10, it says, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did, day, as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Now you're going to find as we study through this that, that the writer of 1 Samuel is the king of understatement. He is going to say things, and, and if you just read it as blasé reading through it, you would have read that and said, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But really, it's, he has this evil plan to get rid of David. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. It's important here. I want to step aside for just a second before I go to verse 14 and remind you, because of the Lord in your life, because you have God working in your life and because you will stand for his principles and because you will stand and be committed to what he has for you, there will be people who will remove you from their presence. There will be people who are uncomfortable being around you, not because you're preaching at them, but because simply living your life for God the way you do will make them uncomfortable and convict them. So don't always try to hang on to every relationship when it starts to come apart. Be wise. Pray about that. Perhaps God is even moving them out of your life for your protection. Maybe God is moving them out of your life because, the, as the old saying goes, you don't hear what they're saying about you, but God does. And perhaps they're just uncomfortable being around you, so they remove you from their lives. Verse 14, and David had success in all his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw what he had great, that he had great success. He stood in fearful all of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So Saul begins to scheme. In the next couple of chapters, we see all the scheming Saul does at least eight different times. Saul tries to take David's life. We find in chapter 18 that Saul gave his daughter in marriage to David simply for the purpose of trying for her to cause David's downfall. He put an order out to his servants and to his son, Jonathan, that they should kill David. He tried to pin him against the wall again with his spear. He sent a group 
to lie in wait outside the house so that when David came out the next morning, they could kill him. And again, they sent, uh, he sent other messengers to snatch him and to kill him. All this in chapters 18 and 19. Jonathan even ends up in the line of fire. And again, I love this passage because of the, I, I read understatement. It just, it's just written so just matter-of-factly. Uh, if you start in verse 30 of 1 Samuel chapter 20, here's what Paul, so, here's the, uh, I can't even talk. You think I'm talk, I talk for a living, but I can't get this out. This is the conversation that happens between Jonathan and Saul. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Gentlemen, don't, don't take that home. That's not something that you're to emulate. But you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth... Neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. So, so he's saying, you've chosen this other guy. You've partnered with him. And do you not get it that God had, that he has set him up to be the next king? So therefore, you will never be king. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him. To strike him. Listen to what, because Saul threw his spear at Jonathan, so Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Does that not strike you as just, I mean, I don't, I'm looking at your faces, I don't think y'all see it the same way I do. That just comes across to me as just, oh, you know, just every day. Now, now, now Jonathan knows for certain that he is determined to put David to death. David's on the run. David is now hiding in caves. He's hiding among the Philistines. He comes to, a, to the city of Nob, and the priests in Nob give him aid. They give him food. Saul ends up finding out that these priests gave him food and aid, so he orders and 85, 85 priests are killed. Saul is in pursuit, and that leads us to chapters 24 and 26. It's a five-to-one odds in this moment. So David has about 600 men. Saul sends 3,000 to go get him. David understood, excuse me, David understood God had a plan and God had a purpose for his life, and he is determined to remain committed to that. So we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, as we read about this moment when Saul and David come face-to-face -face in a manner of speaking. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, so pause right there, he's got this obsession to go kill David, to have David removed from the picture, but the Philistines have invaded the land of Israel again, so he's had to put that on pause and go take care of the problem to, and take care of his country, but now, since the Philistines have been taken care of, he is free to be obsessed again with coming after David. So he, so he returned from following the Philistines. He was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So Saul has gone into this cave for the purpose of doing his business, right? 
Saul, David and his men are deeper in the cave and they see him come in. So they're hush, hush. I can't imagine 600 men being so quiet, but they're quiet. They're sitting there. And it says in verse four, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, all through scripture, if you go hunting, you'll never find where God said that to David. This was the, the men making up their own prophecy, making up their own what God must think because they know David has been anointed king. So they think this is what God has set up. He has put it in this moment for David to be able to take care of it himself. So then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. When I was a kid hearing this story, I often wondered, even if he was busy doing his business, how could David have gotten so close to him? Wouldn't he be able to hear him moving around? And you know how caves echo. Wouldn't he hear him moving around? Wouldn't he hear him getting closer? Scholars tell us that, they, that Saul would have, and it made sense to me, Saul would have taken off his outer robe. He would have laid it aside. So David had no trouble getting to his robe without Saul knowing he was there. Saul, David has the complete opportunity. He is, he is unprotected and he is vulnerable. He's in a position to not be able to defend himself. David could, without any trouble, take Saul out and walk out and declare himself king and handle, and handle it all very well as we would think he should that day. But all he does is cut off a corner of his robe. From this passage, I want us to see three things as we look and as we move through it. First, David's commitment to the purposes of God developed his integrity. It developed his integrity. He would not raise his hand against God's anointed for his own advantages. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6 again. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. In chapter 26, we have a very similar kind of story where the, the army of Saul is encamped. They're again searching and coming after David. So they, they've gone in their camping and they have, God has caused a deep sleep to fall over them. David and a couple of his men are able to actually walk into the camp of Israel without being noticed. So we have another moment where he could take Saul out on his own accord. But instead, it tells us in verse 11 of chapter 26, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David spares his life. His desire is to prove that he has no desire to take Saul out. In the conversation with Saul and David, when David came out of the cave, it's interesting. He points out to him, look, I had you, but I let you go, and I can prove to you I had you. And then in chapter 26, he does something similar. He stands off on a high, high place. He gets his attention, and he shows him his own spear, and he shows him his own bottle of water that he could have had him at any moment. But look at verse uh, 12 in chapter 24. David, speaking to Saul, 
May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Out of the heart, after, out of the wicked comes wickedness. We've heard it is out of the heart the mouth speaks. We know that what is within us will eventually come out. Basically, David is saying, I have no desire. I'm not coming after you. Now, he almost does a backhanded compliment there when he says, oh, by the way, the fact that you're coming after me is wicked, and that just displays your wickedness. But in my case, I am not coming after you. He is committed to doing it God's way. He is not going to take shortcuts. We must have a standard. A code of ethics is necessary in our life that will guide our decision-making. In some circles, we might call that a worldview. If left to our own devices and and our own spur-of-the-moment, however we feel at that moment decision-making, we will go for our own advantages just about every time. We have to know what we stand for. We have to have a commitment to a particular code of ethics, to a particular worldview. Like David, our integrity is developed and our character is developed by having confidence in the plans and the ways of God. Look at Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5. You're, you're familiar with this passage, I'm sure, but Paul is writing to the Romans here. And he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's an odd thing for Paul to say. I don't know too many folks who are going through a hard time and who rejoice in that, who rejoice in the sufferings they are feeling. You know, sometimes it all comes down to our perspective. We can either see that life has been hard and woe is me. It's been one thing after another thing. We can see how these things have all worked against us. And, and, or we can look back on those things and see that through those sufferings, God was providing all along. God was given provision. He was protecting. He was healing. He was doing all of these things for us. So either we can be all about us and think, oh my goodness, I can't believe how the world keeps coming in on me. Or we look back with with spiritual hindsight and we say, look how God has protected and provided for me all this time. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. It all develops our character. These things that God is doing for us and God's doing with us is all for making us better, to make us more like his son, to make us understand where our true commitment needs to lie. David's commitment was to the purposes of God that developed his integrity, but it also demonstrated his humility. Remember, commitment is a promise to be unswerving in allegiance to someone or something, but don't misunderstand this. Don't, don't get the wrong idea in this story. David's ultimate allegiance was not to Saul. Saul was rejected by God. He's a king trying to kill him. 
His ultimate allegiance is to God. And when we understand our ultimate allegiance is to God, that everything we do is for Him, we can then freely act humbly toward those who are out to get us, if you will. Look at verse, 20, uh, verse 8 in, verse, in chapter 24. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. He said, my Lord, and, my Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. David uses language of a loyal subject. I read to you all the different ways Saul was trying to kill David. He wasn't just trying to run him out of town. Saul was determined to kill him. He was after his very life. And David, in humility, recognizes him as the king. He also bows down before him, showing respect. Would you say that Saul has earned his respect? I would say no. But Saul's position deserves the respect because he is the king. Because like it or not, even as we go back and look at this story, whether we like it or not, Saul is the king. Is he the villain of this story? Absolutely. Do all signs point to him being absolutely mad? Absolutely. Is he rejected by God as the king? Yes, he is. But at this moment of the story, he is still the king. Instead of acting out of what we would call justifiable retribution or maybe even what we would call self-defense, David responds humbly before Saul out of a commitment to what God has called him to do. He isn't free to respond to Saul in his, in his own attitudes. He is responding to Saul out of the humility that God has placed in him. I realize that we could spend the rest of our time together discussing the application of this particular point in our everyday lives. We will actually cover some things at the end, but more importantly than me spelling out for you any possible illustration, any possible linkage to your own life, I have no doubt the Holy Spirit will take care of that for me. He's already showing you. In fact, as we talk about responding to someone out of respect because of their position, even if they haven't earned it yet, I'm sure God has brought someone to your mind. I know he did mine. It's not easy remaining committed to God's plans and purposes when those we deal with on a daily basis are not committed to God's plans and purposes. It's difficult to treat others as God would have us treat them when they themselves will not treat us in the same manner. But we're still called to do so. David's commitment to the purposes of God developed his integrity. It demonstrated his humility. And thirdly, it determined his confidence in the future. He had an unswerving allegiance to God, not to the individual Saul. But it determined him to have confidence moving forward. You see, this point will be covered more next week as we talk about some heinous sin in David's life and his courage to be able to go and repent of that sin. And I can't stress this enough, but the training that God does in us as we move through our lives, the training, the discipline, and the correction is for the purpose of preparing us for what may come later. See, God's all-knowing. He's completely sovereign and in control. He knows what's coming in our lives next, even when we don't. 
He knows how to prepare us and train us and test us to get us to the place where we need to be. And as hard as these tests have been for David, the most difficult are still to come. When he will have to repent of this heinous sin, or he will then make the decision to follow in the same footsteps as Saul, rejecting God, rebelling against him, and moving down a path of greater and greater rebellion. It's going to be a hard test coming. As hard as these tests have been, he will have a similar experience of refusing to raise his hand against an opponent. You know, first is to take the throne from Saul. But coming up in his life, and we know this because of what we've read, the next time he will have to face an opponent like this, it's trying to keep his throne from his own son, Absalom. Can't imagine having my own son coming after my place of authority. I can't imagine having my own son coming after my place of prominence. But David's going to have to make a decision. Will he defend himself or will he let God take care of it for him? So through this training field, David is finding confidence in the sovereignty of God. And we can as well. You see, no matter what the circumstances look like, God is in control David can trust that, and we can trust that. David is unyielding to his commitment to God's plans. So how do we move that from David's life into ours? See, Saul was a terrible king. Saul's a terrible person, and he was a terrible father. In our way of thinking, if anyone would have been justified in taking Saul out of the picture, when, the, when he was given the chance, David would be the one that we would think would have the right to do that. But our way of thinking is not God's way of thinking. And as we move into our modern world, it puts us in a place of being very personal here. I'm about to say some things that are not going to always sit well. But I can assure you, I've already had to say these to myself. We have just come through November, we're coming through November and we are about to enter into a season of nothing but political ads on TV, of nothing but political signs out in yards. Friends, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you find yourself on politically. It really doesn't matter how much you agree or disagree with the person in a particular office. We are all called and expected by God to act in humility toward them. Doesn't matter if you agree with him. It doesn't matter if you agree with her. It doesn't matter if you voted for him the first time and they're not going to vote for him. It really doesn't matter. There are no circumstances other than them being directly against the word of God that gives us privilege to speak against them. We can speak against them with our vote or for them with our vote. But Christians look so unchristlike during times of elections because of the way we run our mouth and the way we post on social media. I do not, you don't, this isn't a, um, this isn't toward any particular candidate. You can have your own opinions. You can do what you want to do. I am not endorsing or not endorsing anyone. I can tell you personally, from my standpoint, I do not 
approve of and agree with our current president. But he is still president. So I must pray for him. And I must show him respect. No matter how much it seems like he doesn't deserve it. Because he is president. We are called and expected by God to act with humility. And you know, that even goes for, let's get, let's get out of the political realm, that even goes for the coach of your child's team. Woo, now we're meddling. That coach has authority over that team. Don't act a fool in the stands. You carry the name of Jesus. And I can promise you I'm not saying that to anybody else here but me. Because there were times, whoo, I remember a time in particular, I was coaching third base. And my phone buzzed. And it was the little H Holy Spirit, Peg. (laughs) And she said, you need to calm down. Because at that moment, it wasn't moved, my, my, uh, my, my attitudes weren't directed at a coach, it was directed at an umpire. There's no excuses found in Scripture for us to act like that. You say, Kenan, you have got to be kidding me. God does not expect me to submit to folks who are clearly not acting like they should. He does not expect me to submit to folks who are truly not Christian, who are not following my Christian values. He would not call me to be humble and submit to them. Let me direct your attention to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Moving on to verse 5, therefore... One must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And friends, notice there the wording. It doesn't say respect and honor to those who have earned it. Vote your conscience. But be careful of your verbiage as you talk about it. Second, David, like us, we are to be people who have made a commitment to God's purposes in our lives which will lead to being a person of integrity, a person of humility, and to have confidence for our future. How do we do that? James chapter 4 tells us that. Starting in verse 7, James writes, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit. Surrender. Give it all. Give it all to him. Submit. Let him be the boss in all aspects of your life. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I have a, I believe totally, according to verse 8, when he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I believe the more that we are committed to him, to following him, to studying him, to know what he would have us to do, you can't do it by simply coming in here on a Sunday morning once a week or once a month and hearing something that is from the pulpit and from God's word and think that's going to sink in and make a change in your life without you putting in a little work. 
We have to study. We have to read. We have to pray. We stay committed to his things. And when we are committed and drawing near to him, he draws near to us. And it says that if we, that doing that, we resist the devil. Not only the devil physically or spiritually, but the devilish type of attitudes we have in our hearts. Because God's going to transform those. Those attitudes will start to disappear. And new attitudes will find their place. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Be bothered by your sin, in other words. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Cleanse your hands is the idea of being a person of integrity with your actions toward others. Purifying your hearts is a person of humility in your motives, your decision-making. And when he says, he will exalt you, that means he will lift you up. He will support you. He will give you the wherewithal to stand firm for what he has for you to do. We live in a society that is screaming at us the the kinds of attitudes that we already have inside that we're fighting against. David sat in a cave. He could have very easily listened to the men around him. There probably would have been no one in the, in the uh, nation of Israel who would have held it against David if he took Saul's life out of self-defense because Saul was determined to take his. But he was committed to the purposes of God. There are times that we find ourselves in a moment of our having to defend ourselves. Um, I told you, I've told you in the past, and if, if you're new, I'll tell you, uh, I'm the son of a retired truck driver. My, my dad was over the road during the week, so mom had to be the disciplinarian. So she took care of all the discipline. during. As soon as we did it, we got it. Because she never wanted to use the phrase, you wait till your dad gets home. She didn't want us to dread Dad coming in off the road because we knew what we had done and we knew what we were getting. And I'm sure I didn't deserve it, but I knew, you know. Of course, Mom also says that she punished my brother many times and she thinks she, that he didn't deserve, but she's sure that there was never a time that I didn't deserve it. I don't know what she means by that. But, but she would take care of the discipline because she didn't want us to dread dad coming home. But dad would also tell her if there was something coming in against our family, if there was an issue, whether we weren't treated right at a business or if we weren't treated right by a neighbor or, and there, you know, you, you, just basic life things happening against the family that sometimes you got to take care of. Dad would say to her, if you handle it, I can't. And it was never in dad's... Um, I don't think it was ever in his, his purpose to try to act like God of our family. But God basically tells us that. That if we handle it, it's almost like out of Sermon on the Mount when he says, if you do these spiritual discipline things for the applause of man, you've received your reward already. It's almost as if he's saying, you take care of your own vengeance, you take care of those things on your own, then that's, that's all you get. In fact, John McKay tells us this. 
our attitude needs to be like David's, consistent with the principle of personal ethics enunciated by Paul, where Paul says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. In this way, it is possible to overcome evil with good and also to, dis- to display the likeness of Christ who continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, there's a difference between us dealing with, with divine vengeance, divine justice, and our own personal vengefulness. As the band comes and we get ready for a time of commitment, I want to remind you that divine justice is right and it is legitimate based on God's holiness. Where human vengefulness is strictly about retribution to someone we have perceived has wronged us, and instead of it being based in God's holiness, it's usually based in our pride. Our feelings were hurt. They took, they lied about me, they did these, and folks, listen, I get it. I've been where you are. I have had moments when I was, when I was in middle school and early high school, our family had to change churches because of lies that were proven to be lies but because the people of the church didn't act like Jesus. And our family had to leave. There is nothing worse for the cause of Christ than for a believer who claims the name of Jesus to act like the world in a public manner where it's displayed.